What's up, all you beautiful people? It's your boy Hobart on this Tuesday, December 14th. The sun is once again a thing. Uh, it's been, we had a nice little rainstorm over these last couple of days, which, if you're like me and you're living in this part of California where there's like 300 days of sunshine a year, those rainy days are so sweet. Um, I really liked it, despite it falling on my birthday. Um, I turned 34 over the weekend. And, uh, yeah, you know, I'm a mid 30 year old, pretty weird. Uh, when you're in your twenties, 30 seems like such a scary number. And, uh, you know, it just feels so old and, and then you pass into it and, uh, thirties, the thirties are pretty awesome. I gotta say, um, I feel like I'm still a kid. I, maybe I don't heal as fast, but, uh, you know, the insecurity and the anxiety and the who am I, it's definitely less. I'm not going to say it's gone completely, but it's definitely less. And I feel like you just start to know what you like. I feel like that self-knowledge, you kind of got to earn it struggle through it, grind it out in your 20s. You get into this decade and uh, things start to make more sense. You start to kind of figure out what you like. I think a lot of us find out that what we like is to stay home and chill. (laughs) It's been a big part of this decade so far. A lot of staying home and chilling. It's fun to go out, um, but you know, you kind of want to hang out with your people. And I was talking with my friend about this the other day. Just, I don't know if it's, you know, you get older and it's kind of, it's hard that, you know, I think it's well known. It gets harder to make new friends, but maybe you're just not as experimenting and experimenty. And, uh, I just find myself really, um, valuing my crew and the homies the peeps that have been around and uh yeah it just sometimes you look at a new potential friend and it can just feel so exhausting like oh we got to go do this whole process um you know but i mean i also you know in contrast to that there's also this knowledge you know anytime i go out traveling i feel like i I meet amazing new friends so maybe it's just maybe it's just a balance um, but this, this birthday was great. We had a backyard boogie barbecue at our house. Nice turnout of really lovely people played a bunch of music and got down, ate a bunch of food and there was just so much love and it's, it was really touching to see this community that's, we, you know, me and my brother have been developing these last few years, uh, this last year, especially, and just the people that came out, uh, my parents came out and it really just had the feeling of like a living community, you know, and, and that's big. I really appreciate everybody that came out and, uh, showed me their love and made me feel like I got a spot in this community. Um, so thank you all. It was appreciated. Um, 
you know, we're right in the middle middle of Grundletide and uh, looking towards the week before Christmas. I'm getting ready to head down to L.A. Uh, this is kind of this, you know, right in the middle of the of the uh, of this special holiday time where I'm trying to get some stuff done, but I'm also trying to let myself off the hook because, as we all know be a tricky proposition in between all the holiday cookies and candy canes and hot cocoa but we try um all that to say i have a really special guest for you guys today uh i've wanted to get get him on here for over a year now um when i when i first was starting this podcast i I remember as a practice i sat down and I made a list of dream guests, and this one was on there. It was high up on that list. Um, my mess kit, my, my mess. To, my guest today is a member of my own community and uh, local shop owner, um, baker. Uh, I, I think you could give him the title of community leader. I think that's an apt description of the man um and that's that's uh you know that's because i've seen it especially during the pandemic and this last year um he's really stepped up uh with the community events um they fed the neighborhood with a free pizza day on on Halloween and I know that um through through his own anecdotes and those of my friends as well has really made put a lot of work in and made some sacrifices to, to ensure that his employees um are were supported and able to to continue working sustainably in in the context of his business and and that business is Nick's Pizza uh, Nick is the head chef, uh, baker and founder and owner of Nick's pizza here in the Bushrod neighborhood in Oakland. Um, or are they on the Berkeley side now? I think they're Oakland, Oakland style. Um, Nick Yaper Cox is, is the head chef. And for years, I mean, this is, this is my favorite pizza place in the Bay period. Uh, I'm not just saying that because cause Nick's my guest. I've, I've felt that way ever since I moved to this neighborhood. Um, when I first moved out here about five years ago, I discovered this spot. It's like It was like a half a block away from my house. And the pizza just has this amazing sourdough crust that is so delicious and kind of just just hits all the spots for me that pizza needs to and um quality ingredients and just deliciousness and you know the other big thing about it is that it's a, it, it's a bakery too and and after living in Europe for months uh, and getting to experience what it was like to be in a town where it was just an accepted part of life that you could walk in the morning and go pick up fresh bread that was still warm um, to find a bakery so close to my house that was in walking distance, 
uh, where I could go and and get myself a, a loaf of sourdough that was still warm. That was like such a such a treat and such a um, feeling of community and immediately, you know, kind of gave me this special connection to this business. And so, you know, I wanted to have him on. I wanted to, you know, I've heard through the little bits and pieces of hearsay, you know, anytime you're living in a community, I've heard pieces of his story and I wanted to, wanted to have that on here, you know, cause in addition to, you know, these interviews and these creative practices that I engage in on this platform, one of the things I really like to use this space for is to record people's stories and have it as this online repository of, of knowledge about these amazing people. Um, so we go into it. You, a lot of this is, is the story of Nick, uh, developing as a, as a chef first in New York, um, and then coming back home here to the East Bay, to Oakland, and working. Um, he worked for years at Arismendi in, in the worker-owned co-op space before, uh, then later founding, founding Nick's Pizza, which is, during the pandemic, actually moved locations just a block away and expanded. It's always nice when a when a business moves, but they like move like a block. It's something about that, that I really always kind of tickles me. It's like, um, just the fact that it's still kind of in the same zone. And I do think that the new spot that they worked, they moved to really works and it really suits their needs as a growing business. And it, and it really has been cool to see that despite, you know, taking that risk during the pandemic, uh, they've been thriving. The The place is always full of patrons and it seems like they're really moving forward with gusto. Um, so I'm stoked. I'm happy. You know, I think that's kind of the bedrock of a healthy community are these, are these mom and pop shops and small businesses that, that give the neighborhood uh, its own unique flavor. Um, so yeah, we go through it all. We talk some philosophy as always and uh, I feel like it was a really cool foray into the mind of this community leader, <laughs> of this business owner, of this character that, that lives in my community and works in my community and contributes tasty deliciousness uh, through it all. Um, if you haven't tasted it, I highly recommend going and getting yourself some pizza there or checking out you know, some of the other other baked goods um you won't be disappointed and uh yeah it was just really a treat to sit down and and talk to nick it, it was actually like our first time officially meeting was like right before we did this conversation so you're getting fresh interactions with the hobart nick connection um and that's what i love about this podcast too is you you i always leave with a a little bit deeper of a connection with the people I have on. And I definitely feel like I made a friend. Um, one last note I will say is that, you know, we did this in Nick's pizza in the business location. So, you know, there's a little bit of background noise, a little bit of Foley, a little bit of, uh, some background, uh, you know, machine sounds. So hopefully that will, add to the experience you guys will feel like 
And you, know, you can kind of close your eyes and imagine that you're sitting in the pizza shop with us as we do this. I hope it's not too distracting. I think it actually kind of adds a quality to the track. So without further ado, let me introduce to you Chef Nick Yuppercox on this episode 43 of the BartCast. Great to hear from you. What a surprise. All right, we're back. Um, so you're saying stolen is like a traditional German bread? It is a traditional German Christmas bread. Okay. Um, it's. I won't go into the whole history of it, but mm-hmm. there's a there's a history involving the the use of the amount of butter, and there was actually, I guess, papal legislation passed for this bread to use butter in a time when. You know, times times were lean in Germany, and it you know the use of butter was was being restricted. Um, so it's one of the things in in the baking process with it after it's been baked is that it's it's actually soaked, it's bathed in butter, um, which helps uh, add to its its keeping qualities. It's kind of it's similar to fruitcake in the sense that. It's baked and then held for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, people say that it increases in quality as it ages a little oh, bit. You don't because, hear that about bread very often. Yeah, the the butter that it's bathed in soaks into the bread, and then the rum that all the fruit's been soaked in, you know, leading up to it being mixed, comes out of the bread and kind of reaches equilibrium. It's delicious. Mm. I've never tried it, but that's that sounds interesting. Do you... Uh... Is there like a pairing that you like with it? You said you had. I always, I always say peppermint tea. Mm. Okay. That's kind. Of, that's kind of my go-to for it. Nice. Um, well, hey Nick, thanks so much for coming on the show. Of course, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm here with the Nick from <laughs> Nick's Pizza, my personal favorite uh, pizza place in the Bay. Um, I realized actually. I think part of the reason why I like your pizza so much was I, I grew up in a little town called Lagunitas in San Geronimo mm-hmm. Valley, up in Marin. And uh, in our in my hometown, growing up, we had this place called Video West. It was a little video store, and they had take and bake pizzas. Nice. And they had like this amazing sourdough recipe. Like it it changed hands over the over my lifetime a couple of times it's out of business now but the dough recipe was like part of the business that got handed down uh-huh. and it was always my favorite crust and I didn't even realize that it was sourdough until I came here and I was like oh yeah this, this is like the closest <laughs> thing I found to that you know one of my first uh, examples of pizza that I liked um, so I'm curious like in your own words like what is Oakland style? Sure. Um, I mean, I will not 
lie, I came up with that as a little bit of a marketing gimmick when I when I uh, established the business. But to me, it it does have meaning, um, and you know, I guess we could say that it's about what we make the pizza out of. Um, you know, we're able to make fantastic sourdough here in in the Bay Area and in, in California and the areas that are adjacent to wine country. Um, we have there are all these different environmental factors that contribute to our ability to to maintain cultures of the yeast and bacteria that contribute to this product. Um, so that sourdough crust is is one of the hallmark features, I think. Um, also utilizing everything that we have at our disposal here in terms of, of produce and high-quality product. Um, but Oakland Style, to me, in my business philosophy, is about um, making making use of what's available to us and not, you know, not trying to... Um, I would say, you know... N- not trying to put the cart before the horse, right? Just uh, when I opened up my business in our previous shop almost 10 years ago now, um, it had been a pizza place for like 15 years and it was outfitted with an oven that was probably 50 years old and a mixer, a Hobart mixer (laughs) that had seen um, (laughs) probably a couple of owners, but it's still going strong. Um, And my idea was just to, you know, take a, you know, literally a couple thousand bucks from my parents and, and get a small loan to open that place and not spend half a million dollars trying to build a restaurant or a million dollars. It's easy to spend that much money building a restaurant. Um, but just to do something that was simple and manageable and that I could start on my own with my own labor, um, and, Ultimately, my my business perspective was to do something that could get us into the black from the beginning. Um, And we've been very fortunate that we've always been a financially stable business. Um, The idea of not not getting ahead of myself and, you know, buying all the fanciest equipment and, you know, taking a space down to the studs and renovating it. Um, served me really well you know we moved from that space over to our current location about a year ago now um, and we did do some remodel here but I still you know took the approach of retaining a lot of what was in the space and using what we had to, to make food as opposed to laying out hundreds of thousands of dollars um, and it served us well so far. We're, you know, we're continuing to grow and I don't, I think it makes more sense to kind of take a scrappy approach and, um, you know, build slowly and organically as a business than to try to create a place that's exactly what you want and then, you know, end up so far in debt that you may never, um, be able to realize it as a full vision. So, you know, it it creates a restaurant space that I sometimes 
feel like is is always in the process of being built or being, uh, you know, tweaked. I joke around that it's the Winchester Mystery Restaurant. <laughs> I don't... If you're local to the Bay Area, mm-hmm. there's this place that was, you know, this mansion that was, uh, the, I guess, the heir to the Winchester Rifle Company continued to build throughout her life. And, you know, she, I guess thought she was being chased by the ghosts of the people that the rifles killed so yeah, she was I heard she saw like a there was like a guru or some sort of spiritual uh, advisor in when she was living in New York I think or somewhere on the east coast who advised her to move out west and and keep building this yeah, mansion you know stores stairways and, to nowhere mm-hmm. so the restaurant feels like that sometimes because there's always another you know, tweak or small redesign that we need to do to make it function better. But it's also problem part of the part of the problem solving that makes being a restaurant owner interesting. Um, so that kind of gets away from your question. But I, you know, Oakland style is to me it's it's making the best with what you've got. I think really sums it up. Whether it's being able to access incredible fresh produce here in the Bay Area, you know, being in a part of the world where we have fantastic meat purveyors like Hobbs, who are located here in the Bay Area and make our pepperoni and all of our sandwich meats, Um, or, you know, being from here and being, having strong enough, like, business acumen about the area that, you know, is able to see oh, there's this little, our old shop is this little rundown shop, but they really need more services in this neighborhood. And if we can create something that is priced well for the neighborhood and accessible to all the different types of folks that live here, we could probably have a thriving business um, just by making do with what's here. So yeah, served us well so far. It's, it's cool. Like I've seen a number of, of small businesses that that kind of started out similar to you guys you know I, I moved into this neighborhood now I think a little over four years ago mm-hmm. and moved like a half a block from the old spot and it that was one of the first things that struck me it was like oh look at this cute like little kind of one room pizzeria it makes me think of like like Fairfax Scoop up in where near where I grew up in Marin mm-hmm. or even like Bake Sale Betty's up on Telegraph, like these businesses that are open in these tiny little spaces Mm -hmm. and you're kind of able to prioritize the food Mm -hmm. and deliver like on a really quality product and not get too, I think sometimes businesses can get caught up in trying to like do too much like menu wise. And I really like that you guys have this like you had real, your like real refined yeah idea. you had like your strong standard yeah. choices and then with the rotating menu every week or every two weeks um there was like an opportunity to try new stuff but like most days like i order the same old sausage yeah. mushroom like that's yeah. just my favorite pizza you know yeah um but it's been really cool to see how like all those mo- all those businesses that i named you guys are all doing have done very well and it's been like a a sustainable business model i know 
you know, anytime you're starting out in a new profession, you know, I'm no, definitely no exemption from this. Like I love gear, you know, gear is intoxicating. Yeah. Like I want to get the nicest mics or the nicest cameras or the new fancy oven. And yeah. it does take a degree of discipline to, you know, to, I like gear, but I also really love old things. Oh yeah, which has been, you know, I think our our ovens at the old shop, and we've replaced them since. And there have been times when I regret doing that, even mm. though they were too small for our new space. But they were they were built in a time when, and it's cliche, but you know they don't they don't make ovens yeah. like that anymore. Yeah. Um, how, and how, part of it is like they don't make thermostats with mercury anymore. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, but those things, I mean, they were they were rusting out on the backs when mm-hmm. we pulled them out. So it was, it was really <laughs> it was time to retire them. And they got they got sent up north to go live a retirement life, and hopefully will one day be installed in um, you know on my friend's land up in Oregon cool. and get some use up there. Um, but they were, they were like, uh, kind of the final design of the man that worked for, for Blodgett Oven Company and is credited as, as being the person that really created the gas deck oven for pizza. Mm. Um, he was an old Italian guy that lived in New York and had a restaurant, you know, used restaurant supply company, um, on the Bowery, which is where all the used restaurant supply houses uh, have always been. And he would see these coal, get these coal ovens in, and he decided to retrofit one for gas at one point. He ended up opening up a concept called Pizza Plaza, where this was almost, it wasn't a, it wasn't a chain, but he would consult, and he, his thing was that he would kind of if you gave him the keys to your space he would do everything from the restaurant design layout getting selling you your equipment figuring out your formulas for you teaching you how to operate um and at some point you know had a booth at the um i guess the new york world's fair you know pushing bringing this concept forward and was eventually hired by blodgett who were you know, restaurant equipment manufacturers to design ovens. Um, and he made, you can, you can research some of this stuff, you know, on YouTube and, and some of the pizza history, uh, blogs out there, but he eventually, this oven that was his final design was kind of as good as it got. And the one that we had was built in, 70s probably and it lasted us until 2020 basically (laughs) and it was still going you know we just it seemed silly to bring it into the space when we're clearly going to need a larger oven um and you know it was me think of like an old piece of like analog recording gear you know like yeah like it's gonna it's gonna outlive us all yeah (laughs) totally how important is the oven in, in in this baking process, especially with like pizza dough, it's incredibly important. Um, and we're we're in the process of probably replacing the ovens that we have now. 
um, the most difficult thing for us has been to find an oven that works as well for our baking program as it does for our pizza program because at, at this point in time most ovens are designed either to do one or the other really well um, so there are all these I won't go into too many details about it but between trying to get something that can get as hot as you want to bake pizza at and recover as quickly when you're baking pie after pie you can imagine the oven that's designed to do that isn't the same oven that's designed to hold moisture really well for sourdough bread and run at a really consistent lower temperature um, where you load stuff in and maybe move it once in the baking process don't open the doors um, so it, you know it's it's the oven's really important um, how does it how does it uh, how, how do the uh, like the oven how does the oven environment differ when you're baking a pizza versus like you said like say bread or bagels or sure um, I mean they all have different baking temps mm -hmm. um, pizza you bake classically hotter and drier okay. than you do a loaf of bread you don't want to put a loaf of bread in an oven that's approaching 600 degrees or it's just going to burn on the outside before it's baked through um, you also with loaves particularly you want to trap steam in the oven or, or have a way to create steam in the oven um, this allows the bread to expand as it's baking the crust doesn't set right away when the when dry heat hits the exterior um, it also allows for some gelatinization on the exterior of the crust which gives you like a crispy chewy exterior um, so it's tricky you've seen anybody who kind of follows sourdough baking um, will see that in the last few uh, maybe five years um, we've gotten into a phase of, of baking particularly like home baking that relies really heavily on using Dutch ovens like cast iron Dutch ovens um, as a baking vessel which is something that people weren't doing at home 10 years ago um, and that is almost never done in a commercial environment um, but it's it's interesting to me that it's it's kind of I want to say come back as as a method for baking um, but it's not really come back because nobody's really done that since the mm -hmm. Egyptians um, why did you guys choose to do it with your practices what, what about it interests you or oh i just i mean we we don't bake in cast iron pans okay. um it's not practical on a large scale but it's interesting to me to see that that just kind of it speaks to the idea of retaining moisture and steam you know if you're baking in a closed vessel as opposed to in your regular oven at home gotcha. um you're able to just trap steam near the loaf um so this is kind of, it's a, it's a workaround for home baking that people have figured out in the last few years. Um, and it's become so commonplace that people that are learning to bake at home now don't even entertain the thought of not doing that. They, they think they can't bake bread without a big $100 cast mm -hmm. iron oven. Um, but 
it's cool it's cool to me because if you look at like the you know the deep history and we're talking about thousands of years back history of bread and learn about the first ways that the Egyptians break, baked bread they baked in clay vessels mm. um, and that's it's it's cool it's cool that you know there's this kind of cyclical understanding of techniques and that you know as humans we kind of come back to the same place that people figured out thousands of years ago um, like a, for us we can just the whole oven trap steam so we don't have to do right, that right. I get you though there is something about baking bread that that ties you in it's like this trans generational trans uh, era food that it's changed in little bits and styles but like people have been making bread I mean bread has been a yeah. thing you yeah know? and so I know from my own and experiences pizza, pizza is yeah. you know it's flatbread that's what yeah. that's the first bread that anybody figured out to make you know this is I stir together some flour and water and look it starts fermenting and then it becomes something that I can cook mm. and eat because it's not just a hard cracker essentially um, you know and flatbread there's, there's not a single culture that doesn't have some kind of flatbread that they make whether it's, you know, fried in a pan or, you know, on a griddle or in an oven. Mm -hmm. It's it's an absolutely global thing. Um, but, yeah, it is. I mean, this is like this is why bread baking is interesting to me. I don't I don't think there's a single bread baker out there who does it for more than a short period of time who isn't intrigued by you know the history and the connection to all of human culture in it um, you know I I know my baking staff gets an earful anytime we bring in a new product about the history of this or why you know <laughs> why this is done this well why don't we mix it the way we mix this other thing like because this is how you know this is how this product is mixed and this is why this product mm -hmm. was developed this way the wheel's been invented yeah and <laughs> you know there's it's cool to understand that you know we use techniques that come from different cultures in different parts of the world um, in different points in human history so it makes to me it makes something that's you know it's work that's repetitive it can be very routine but you know it's also um you know connects you to a process that's so much greater than yourself yeah i mean i on those terms i'm curious like uh just to, just to hear like how like how did you originally get into baking? Where did your story? St where does your story start with regards to your, sure. your, your um, journey? And, and, and how did you get into baking? I mean, I originally got into. I originally got into bread because I grew up in the Bay Area, and we have, you know, at least for my whole life, I've always had amazing bread mm -hmm. here. Um, place of sourdough, right? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if any. I don't know if any one place in the world can yeah. can claim that. Um, 
except for maybe the Fertile Crescent. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is certainly, you know, I when I was in my early 20s, I worked at a little pet supply store on San Pablo in Berkeley that's right across the street from where Acme's original location is. And I was like a stock clerk there. I put away pallets of dog food all day long. And for lunch, I would, I would like bring an avocado to work with me and go get a loaf of olive bread for, from Acme almost every day. Um, and, you know, I was vegetarian at the time, so that was like pretty much as good as it gets. Mm-hmm. But that was my real kind of like humble working class lunch. Yeah. Um, And I knew I had it good. It's not that I didn't recognize that that was, like, an amazing experience to be able to have every day. Um, But it wasn't... I mean, I think a few years later, I went and got a job working in the front of the house at one of the Simi Freddy bake shops and, you know, was a little bit of a flaky teenager at the time or flaky young adult at the time. I'm just gonna shocker. <laughs> You're getting get a little bit of shade on me. So I I you know, at that point I wanted to learn how to bake, but I wasn't really in a great place to be committed to a career yet. Um, oh, yeah. it wasn't until I moved out to New York in my in my mid twenties, uh, that I decided to get into the world of baking and pastry and I went to school um, I went to school really focused on working as a pastry chef um, but I was really interested in bread it just New York wasn't really the place to learn it at the time Um, I think there are probably a lot more artisan bakeries there now than there were, were back in 2003 or whatever when I was there Um, but I did, you know, um, I cut my teeth in, in kitchens there and I got to learn how to behave in a restaurant (laughs) environment, which is really, you know, huge. Um, and I got to do a lot of the fine dining thing there, um, and work under some really amazing women, um, in pastry departments out there. And eventually I got offered a position to work for Alex Carnicelli, uh as her pastry chef, which I took and did for a little while. And at some point I was on vacation in Italy and got being, being off of the coast of Naples, got me really homesick for California. Um, and I got back and told Alex that I was moving back to the Bay Area and she said, what are you going to go be a hippie ripped jeans sourdough baker? <laughs> I was like, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, sounds pretty sounds good sounds like a fantastic yeah, idea actually. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I got really, it, it was it was a big challenge to be in New York in you know, in the height of molecular gastronomy working you know, I was like in my mid twenties, heading a pastry department, and you know, but you talk a lot about creativity. It was kind of like the pressure to be creative was making me sick. 
Like, mm. I, I felt so much stress to do something groundbreaking at work every day, and it pushed me past the point of being able to really focus on how to do, th like, things classically and perfectly. Um, and it was, I think it was frustrating. Um, I certainly, I mean, it also just, the, the kind of food that was popular in New York at the time wasn't, and this wasn't necessarily at the restaurants that I was working at, but um, it, it didn't really speak to me. Like, it wasn't feeding my soul mm -hmm. to, to feel like I had to make mango caviar or something like that. Um, so I came back here and, and finally got to go to work at a bakery. Um, I, I worked at uh, the now sadly closed EC Ice Cream in their production kitchen for a while, and then I worked at Eris Mindy. Um, which is like a definitive hippie sourdough ripped jeans oh, yeah. bakery, um, worker owned collective and all. Uh, and that was a great, I mean, that was kind of my last move before opening up my own business. Um, and it taught me a, a, an incredible amount about not only how to visualize a bakery program, um, and how to run a business, but also how to run a business ethically and with the workers in mind. Um, so that was kind of what gave me the final push. And if you, there's been, it's interesting, I always think there's been a number of businesses that came out of uh, kind of my, my class at the Arismendi that I was at. I worked with Reem Asil, who was now has Reams um, in San Francisco. It's a, okay. She calls it a, an Arab street corner bakery. Um, and she she got a James Beard nomination a couple of years ago. She's done a fantastic job with her work. Um, there were a couple other people in my class of Arizmendi, as I like to think of it, yeah. that opened up other various projects, which isn't normally, um, I think it's kind of abnormal for a worker co-op to see people kind of split off and do their own thing. Um, but it was really cool that it happened in a way that I think didn't, um, it wasn't a disservice to like worker ownership. I think all the businesses that sprang up out of that group of people carried forward the ethos of of um, democracy in the workplace and you know trying to change do their part to change the restaurant industry to make mm -hmm. it better for the people that work in it um, well, I'm, so, I'm curious what it was like to go from working in this like fast paced high intensity high pressure New York mm -hmm. pastry environment you were you said you were the the head the head of the pastry department so was um, uh, was that like you were coming up with the recipes yeah 
So I was, at my last job in New York, I was mm -hmm. a pastry chef. It was a small pastry department, mm -hmm. meaning it was me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one person that would cover my station on my night off. Um, but, yeah, I had my own menu, you know. Um, I got, there's always almost, I want to say almost, Every pastry menu has one dessert on it that the pastry chef is not allowed to take off the menu. <laughs> um, or maybe almost every menu. You know, there's always something yeah. that the owner loves so much that no matter how out of season it is or... So there was, you know, there's one... They weren't... They were great. Like, they sold like crazy and they were yeah. a profitable dessert. But there were some raspberry beignets on that menu that weren't mine. But everything else... Yeah. You know, I was, chef trusted me enough to, you know, give me free reign of what I put on the dessert menu. Um, How much of your time was devoted towards, like, experimentation and coming up with new, remember you saying that you felt a lot of pressure to come up with new, new recipes, like. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think when you work hands-on in a kitchen all the time and when you work in a kitchen you work all the time um there's not most people unless you're really at the top of your class and what you're doing don't have time to carve out separate time for r&d um it's just kind of feathered into the rest of your work mm. um but i always you know i th i think then i probably changed my menu every couple of months Okay. Um, and there was more of, you know, when, when a restaurant is willing to take on a dedicated pastry chef, there's the ability to do that. A lot of restaurants, you know, figure out what their desserts are and kind of set it and forget it. And the prep guys learn them well enough mm -hmm. that they can, you know, batch make stuff. And then whoever works the cold station at night can put it on a plate, um, but I was able to there kind of look to some of the people that were working in New York at the time who were working with a more seasonal approach. Um, Alex, Alex Gernichelli, my chef at Butter, was one of them, although she was on the savory side. But there was also a, a chef named Claudia Fleming who used to work at Gramercy Tavern back then who had a very, like, I don't know how she would feel about this, but I think she had a very kind of West Coast, Coast approach to her food. She was much more focused on what was good at the green market that week than, you know, keeping the same things on mm -hmm. the menu. Um, so I was able to look to some of those folks for inspiration. Um, so that's part of, like, that. You, that's more of a West Coast thing than, than an East Coast cultural aspect? At that time, yes. Yeah, I mean, I think there have been, I think there have been some. I haven't spent a lot of time in New York since I left. Mm -hmm. um, not that I don't love it there, but I run a restaurant, so I don't right. get to travel much. Yeah. Um, but I think that, um, I mean, it was one of the things that was really strange to me when I, when I was working in New York, was how. And I just, you know, I was, like, Bay Area Provincial. Like, I didn't know that I would go out there and be like, oh, produce is, like, really hard to access out here. You know, I remember my 
my my pastry chef at 11 Madison Park coming to me with a a case of lemons. This was in my really really early days in the kitchen when I was given the most banal tasks. Um, coming to me with this little 10 pound box of lemons and saying, I want you to get every tiny last bit of zest off of these because they were so expensive. This case of lemons cost 30 or 40 bucks or something like this, you know, which was a lot back mm -hmm. then. It's still a lot for yeah. 10 pounds of lemons. Right. Um, she's like, so, you know, I don't, you're going to zest these all and then you're going to juice them all. But if you leave even the tiniest bit of zest on there, I'm going to fucking kill you. Yeah. Um, and I started zesting them and I instantly got that, you know, it was the going, it was the tasting the pizza that you grew up with mm -hmm. experience, that Proustian moment of, oh, wow, these, this, what is it they smell like? This, they smell like my childhood lemonade stand. Oh, these are Meyer lemons. And Meyer lemons, I didn't even realize this is the, the Bay Area lemons. They're special. Right. You know? Yeah. These were shipped all the way from California. But this is like what I grew up with on a tree in my backyard, mm -hmm. you know? Um, or that, you know, it's, I mean, there's just, even outside of the restaurant world, you know, how much is this tomatoes? Five bucks? You know, like, why is produce so hard to get out here? Oh, it's because I don't live in a growing region yeah. anymore. Right. You cross the border into Jersey and it's flowers that they're growing. You know, I just, I was young and didn't have like this perspective on the way that agriculture works in the country. Um, Something we take for granted here. For we sure. really, we really take it for granted here. Um, you know, it was part of what was, what was so nice about my homecoming was like, oh, this, really all this stuff is at my disposal again. Um, so, you know, I think, yeah, I think season, there's a stronger focus on seasonality in the Bay Area because it's what's available to mm -hmm. us, you know. I mean, we, I, well, I didn't eat at Chez Panisse until I was in my early 30s probably, but, you know, it's, it's the birth, birthplace of that stuff in a lot of ways. I'm curious what the, the contrast was like, like, leaving that environment when you came back here now you're suddenly in this like hippie torn pants <laughs> wild you know worker co-op bakery at, at I mean Mindy. it was it was it was cool it was a challenge for me I think in a lot of ways um, to kind of readjust my expectations and readjust um, the way that I evaluated my work and the work of the people around me um, to understand that like start to understand that like there can be a lot of things that people can bring to the table there can be a lot of things that people can bring to the table in food service that, you know, technical skill is not always the most important thing. Um, you know, that, that work environment at Arismendi, I was able to work with people that had a 
that had come to the bakery, you know, half of them because it was a co-op and they were interested in working in a co-op and half of them because it was a sourdough bakery and they were interested in working in a sourdough bakery. Um, so it was, I mean, it was cool to work in a more relaxed environment. Sometimes that's not the best environment for me and I, you know, it gets my hackles up a little bit. Um, but I also was, it was really eye-opening to to be in a place where we were spending so much time engaging in democratic decision-making and really, like, owning and running a business together um, and valuing everybody's input in, you know, whatever decision was on the table. I was also, like, thrilled to be working somewhere that, you know, again, had great access to produce and it was just a given that there was like a ton of vegetarian food all the time that not everything was focused on like um you know that the food value in the in the food that we were creating wasn't based on like serving a really expensive cut of meat or you know using some really rarefied ingredients the biggest thing for me, though, was coming out from behind the kitchen wall, the kitchen doors, mm. um, and being able to engage more with the people that we were serving food to. I remember in my... I always worked morning shifts at Arizmendi, um, as I do now, and I remember in my first maybe, like, week or two there, I was on a shift where I did four hours of production and then we opened and then I would work the register for the first, for the last four hours, of my shift, the first four hours of the day, or maybe two hours of the day or something. Um, and I got a lot of really positive feedback about how enthusiastic I was, you know, with customers who were like, oh, I'll, I'll take this scone right here. And I made that yeah, scone, right, right. Yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I still, it's funny because, you know, now, again, a lot of my shifts at the shop currently, I do morning production and then I go set up the register and brew some coffee and, you know, I'm, I'm able to be the person behind the counter in the morning. And that, to me, like, that's, it's one of my happiest places. Yeah. Like, I love, I call it boyfriend experience. Like, I love, here's your cup of coffee, right. here's your scone. <laughs> you know, so what a great, what a great part of the day to be able to engage with somebody. I always say it's like working breakfast is nice because the day hasn't dragged people down yet. It's still got all these positive possibilities right. in front of them. Well, and your, your potential for having an effect on the people you interact with is super high. Like I remember working as a barista and I felt such a there was a sense like a subtle power of like hey, I could really start someone off well today yeah you know like maybe i'm not the i can't do the fancy leaves and heart spirals <laughs> but like i'll give you some heart spirals on the inside you there know you like go. i'm gonna like say something or engage in some way where i know that this person is gonna leave feeling good about themselves or yeah. smiling and, and to me that's that really does feed into the work i'm sure like for for a baker like you're also getting this opportunity to like you just woke up super early, you've been creating, and now you get to present. You know, yeah. Like, like, you're getting to see kind of that 
instant feedback and recognition for your efforts. Yeah. I'm sure it's like, oh, I, you know, occasionally we'll have a customer at the pastry case in the morning who's, oh, like, sorry, I'm having such a hard time take, like, making up my mind. I don't want to take up all your time. Take, like, take your time. <laughs> You're checking out everything that I just did for the last three hours. Right. Like, let me know if you have any questions, yeah, you yeah. know? Appreciate it. You know? <laughs> That's, that was one of the first things that struck me about your business, you know, having spent, you know, I spent in my early 20s, you know, six months living in Denmark and traveling Europe. And it's something I think in, you know, our kind of post-war modern industrialized culture, especially in the U.S., we've lost the connection with access to warm bread. Mm-hmm. And I remember moving into this neighborhood and like finding that there was a bakery, like literally two minute walk from my front door Mm -hmm. where I could go show up at 11 Mm -hmm. and get a loaf that was still warm, Mm -hmm. you know? And like, that's something my mom has always romanticized, you know, as I was growing up, like, oh, the bread was still warm, you know? And I think that like, you know, you go to these cities and these towns all over Europe and that's like something that just expect, like the way that we take for granted fresh produce access Mm -hmm. they're like no no bread's warm like you should be shouldn't be more than a few hours out of the oven if you're going to eat it and we're so used to like sliced bread off the shelf yeah getting that experience of coming in and like being handed something that felt alive to me you know and and the sourdough being this kind of living thing as well um yeah it was like it, it it's something I, I wish, I hope that we can build more of in our culture because I think that it speaks to an ethos where really a lot of people are hungry for, you know, yeah. part, pardon the pun, but yeah. it's, uh, that was one that like really made me feel like, oh, I'm, I'm in a community right now. Like this is, this is Thank a, you. a community I, aspect to this. That means know? a lot to me. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think it does have, I think that, There, you know, there are a lot of things that create a sense of place and community, and I think that a neighborhood bakery can really, really beautifully contribute to that. Um, I know that I always wanted a bakery, you know, even when I was working and until two o'clock in the morning as a pastry cook in New York, you know, I knew that what I really wanted to do is work on the other side of the day. Um, but I also knew that like when I was at Mindy and I knew I wanted to strike out and do my own thing. And I tried something else before I landed on the pizza shop. Um, I had a like a chocolate, an artisan chocolate bar company for a short period oh, really? of time. That was not a good business plan. <laughs> it was way too much work, and I just, you know, there's no way you can. I I, I have a hard time charging for my own labor, mm-hmm. um, and there was no way that I could comfortably charge enough for these meticulous candy bars that I was making. That I was like. I couldn't afford to hire anybody, so I was like hand wrapping everything myself and Once you split printing your out all the labels. Yeah. And you know, I couldn't 
it wasn't a big enough venture to warrant its own space, so I was paying for kitchen space hourly. It was, and I was trying to be the salesperson. It was silly. It was ridiculous. It was called tortoise and hare chocolates. Um, but, you know, I did that, and I thought, okay, the next thing has to be something that will actually sustain itself financially. And I'm not, I've never been super concerned with making, like, a incredibly profitable business. I've just wanted to make a good job for myself and good jobs for other people and something that has a positive effect on the area that it's in. Um, so, well, I really want to open up a bakery, but I know that it's hard to make money off of a bakery. It's pretty obvious that selling five or six dollar loaves of bread, like, you gotta sell a lot of them and if you want to have a retail presence as opposed to just have a factory, you got to figure out something else to do. Um, so pizza made a lot of sense, you know. Um, so pizza was kind of the vehicle that let, let you sell bread? <laughs> oh, yeah. I always, I always, I tell these guys, the, the pizzas are bread and butter. The bread's like window dressing. Yeah, it's yeah. not window dressing, you know. It's uh-huh. it's very meaningful work, yeah. um, but you know, it's not. It's certainly. It's only in our new space that it's gotten to a point where it even slightly looks like a sustainable business could be created around just that. Mm. Um, and there's still mornings when today's the Wednesday that nobody's coming in on their way to work in the morning and why did we all get up and do this all morning long you know Um, but you know I knew that if we could if I could take what I knew about bread baking and cooking and what was available to us here in the Bay Area and make pizza out of it I could make myself a business that would support itself um, and hopefully allow me to do the other passion project stuff at the same time. Not that pizza's not a passion, but... I'm curious, like, you know, as I'm sure you experienced living in New York, just the level of um, East Coast snobbery about the pizza that we have out Mm -hmm. here. Has your yeah, I make bagels too. I hear right. it all. I hear right. it all day long. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so like, has your like li- having lived out there and moving down here, moving back here, did your idea of what constitutes good pizza did that change? Like, I'm curious what um, that process was like, living out in New York and coming back to Cali. I mean, there's a lot of pizza in New York. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of good pizza in New York. There's also a, a lot of really bad pizza in New York. Um, and I think that... I don't think that there's anybody that'll argue with that. Like, I don't... You know, there I think one of the things that makes... That sets the bar a little higher for pizza in New York is how much the slice shop is ingrained in the culture there. Um, you know... With anything, if it's fresh, it's going to be better than it's not. And if it's such a regular thing that you stop and grab a slice of pizza between point A and point B, or when you get off the subway or mm-hmm. whatever, it's, you know, the more people do that, the more it can be supported and the fresher it's going to be. Um, 
I don't. I think my basic understanding of what a good pizza has is has stayed the same um, all this time. I think you know we get we get kind of like. I think most New Yorkers that come in here and proclaim themselves New Yorkers um, tend to have positive things to say about the food that we make. Some of them even say, this is the best pizza that I've had since I've left New York, um, or the best bagels that I've had since I've left New York. I, I believe in baking traditions, and I believe in, like, you know, I believe that all the people that make pizza in New York know a thing or two about how to make pizza um you know and i don't need to you know there are a lot of there are a lot of things that i picked up just by observation and being there um about how pizza is made you know in in a slice shop that i think we've adapted into what we do here Mm -hmm. um even just as far as you know Dough dough management techniques, Mm -hmm. um, or you know that old oven that we had at the old shop that was, you know, the kind of oven that you would have found in a New York slice shop Mm -hmm. circa nineteen eighty. You know, I don't think most New Yorkers, at least in my experience of being there in the mid two thousands, would think that you should put delicata squash on pizza, but. I think there are probably plenty of Italians that would think that that was an acceptable thing to do. Right. You know, we're talking about a food stuff that's like traveled halfway around the globe. Um, so, and it's adapted throughout this country in so many ways. It's adapted throughout Italy in so many different ways. Um, so, to, you know, I think... I think we're I think I'm still in the same place on what makes a good pizza and I think that what, is what does make a good pizza that is care about the dough. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, really really care about what is going to happen with the dough and the way that it's going to taste because it's the thing that hits your tongue first and that's really important mm-hmm. in the experience of eating something. Um use good ingredients don't screw it up. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's not that hard. Mm-hmm. I, you know, when people are learning to make pizza, I mean, I always tell people you have to fake it till you make it when you're making pizza. Like, the the process involves a lot of confidence and if you don't have it, you have to pretend that you do because otherwise you're just going to screw everything up. But it's also, like any baking, it's a, it's a process and sourdough particularly is a days-long process and... If every person along the line does their job right, and then the last person forgets forgets to take the pizza out of the oven on time, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that's don't screw it up. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's not it's not that hard to do right. It's also not that hard to fuck up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I would imagine the the um, the dough. Like, I've always liked the thick crusts. Uh-huh. Like like the pizzeria that I told you about had like the thick sourdough crust, uh-huh. and to me like the crust is like such a delicious end. Uh-huh. Like I like all the toppings and stuff, but I love eating like that good sourdough crust at the end. And uh, so like you know the the people I've lived on the East Coast who are like yeah thin crust like 
they don't like it as thick on the on the edge. I'm like, man, that if, if it's done right, that's like such a treat. Uh-huh. You get to eat your slice with the topping, and you get <laughs> a couple bites at the end. Um, is there a good like? You know, you guys have your own ratio of sauce to cheese to uh-huh. dough. Um, where do you think you fall on the, you know, the the spectrum of you know? Some places are pretty sauce heavy. Some places are put barely any cheese a few years ago we had a little kid write us i want to think it's a love letter but i think it was actually like an essay for school um you know write an essay about your favorite restaurant Uh um and i'm i'm paraphrasing here but and i haven't filed away somewhere because it was lovely Mm -hmm. um but you know he said i love the pizza at nick's the dough is perfect. There's not too much sauce. There's not too much cheese. <laughs> so that's for a while we were saying that was going to be our training manual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but to be, I mean, you you want to be able to taste everything, right? Right. Like yeah. there used to be. I won't name it, but there used to be a pizza place uh, in North Oakland when I was probably like in high school or something like that that had. That really tomato pasty thick sauce, um, and it, you know I think it's maybe okay when it's hot, and then if the pizza's cooled down a little bit, you get like a sheet of cheese, and then there's this like of sauce that mm-hmm. comes out when you bite down on it. Like that's not what I want. I want to like all of all of the things that we use are lovely. I mm-hmm. want none of them to overpower each other. Yeah. Um, and some people will say like. I don't know. To me, my palate isn't really acclimated to sourdough. Um, some people think that sourdough is too strong of a flavor to go with the rest. You know, that it that it throws Ooh, the yeah. balance out, yeah. out of whack. But <laughs> I, I don't I don't know. I don't believe that. I, I think it's delicious. Me but, too. You know, <laughs> I grew up eating it. Uh-huh. No, I've definitely, there's been plenty of nights where I've missed your guys' window and I'll end up like, <laughs> scrolling the, the internet trying to find another sourdough spot because I'm like I uh, I gotta get that sourdough fixed man <laughs> like it's just I think for me too I our, my family we, we all are people that struggle with you know some we're not celiacs but uh-huh. like wheat flour is hard for uh, difficult for our systems to process and I can have a, a, a pizza and it can just lay me out. Yeah. You know, and it's one of the things I've always enjoyed about the pizza you guys make here is I can eat it and not feel like I got hit over the head with a shovel, yeah. you know, and. Well, all that yeast and bacteria is already doing some digesting for you exactly, before we make right. it into a pizza. <laughs> Probiotics, man. Yeah. And so, you know, even though ideally I should be like, you know, if I was a, a better man, I could cut it all out, but I just love bread too much. Yeah. I know I will, so I might as well eat the... Let's not judge ourselves based around what we eat. Totally. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, and, but I think that, like, it is something that is easier for me to come back to because I do feel like it, what I am eating is... This feels thing feels, be- feels yeah, better. Totally. That's, I can dig that. Doesn't just I mean, it's great. certainly, you know, if you want to kind of think about um, industrialization and food systems, you know, what what we do harkens back to 
a pre-industrial version. You know, we use organic flour, which is non-GMO, um, and we use like a natural process of leavening, mm. which is from before they started making bread in factories, right? Um, you know, commercial yeast, baker's yeast is used so you can have exact predictable results in all the different stages of bread making, which is what you need if you're trying to run three shifts down to the minute, right? you know, on a factory floor. Um, and those really, really strong flours that make those crazy spongy like Wonder Breads and stuff like that, those were developed, you know, by grain producers in order to withstand what, you know, industrialized equipment does to a dough. Mm-hmm. Um, you can look, I mean, if you can, if you want to, read up on the history of the baguette in France, you know, there's this big arc in quality that happened or a dip in quality that happened, I guess you would say, um, when they started uh, introducing, you know, machines into the into the forming process. This is why bakers talk about being artisanal, um, you know, meaning made by a human, made by hand. Mm-hmm. Um, is that what that word means? I've always wondered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Made by an artisan. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if something, if, if a bread or a pizza dough is, you know, and we use, we use a a machine in part of our process, but we use it as minimally as possible, our, our Hobart mixer. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's not, it's a pretty, it's a workhorse. It's not the gentlest of mixers possible, but we try to use it in a way that's mindful. Um, but the way that, the way that the industrialization of grain has worked has, you know, the history has pushed it in the direction of being able to make things as quickly as possible and as cheaply as possible, not to make them as well adapted to the human digestive system as possible. (laughs) Those are two different, uh, two different, you know, in goals, I think. So, you know, we've been lucky to, to live in a time when artisan baking has had a renaissance and people are starting to think more about, you know, the value of a warm loaf of bread that was made by hand and shaped by hand um, and willing to pay a little bit more for it than they would for a loaf of bread that was made in a factory. Yeah. Um, because you can't, you know, all those... All those machines are labor-saving devices, and if you want people to work in the food industry, you have to pay them well to do the work, um, and it's not easy work. Um, I, I think that is something about the Bay Area that makes it really special, though. Is that it costs so much to live here? <laughs> I love that. Um, but just, there is a philosophy of of investing in your diet. I mean, like mm. I grew up, you know, we, I grew up definitely on the poverty line, single mom. And even, you know, when we, when, when we moved in with my stepdad and we were doing a little better off, you know, we didn't have a ton of money. My, my parents were both teachers, but the one thing that we would never skimp on was food. Mm-hmm. And it was always organic. It was always, 
you know, there, there was a, a attention paid to, to what we were putting in our bodies. Mm-hmm. Something I've noticed here, it's one of the things that makes it hard to live in certain places that don't have that access is it's like, it's so kind of built into my psyche to, to want to be able to have an organic option or to mm-hmm. want to have, you know, that, that little, it's like paying that extra isn't even something I think about in the calculus because yeah. I just wouldn't buy the other food. I yeah. Guess. You know, it's like, well, yeah, this is one of the cool places in the country that you can go use WIC benefits at a farmer's market. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, of course, poor people always have to do more work yep. to feed themselves yeah. well. But at least know. there are some <laughs> options here. You know, the, uh, the it's not the only option is fast food mm-hmm. or the only option is, you know, eating something from gas station because there's nowhere else cheap to eat and you have to work and maybe you're working two jobs and you don't mm-hmm. have time to actually prepare food at home um you know we're lucky in a lot of ways and i think there's still a lot of work to be done around you know the systems of of food here and around you know economic equality and Mm -hmm. what who has access to um it's not shopping at whole foods you know (laughs) um but I, you know, we're we're lucky. There are a lot of people that have that have laid a lot of groundwork for that in the mm-hmm. Bay Area and being somewhere where you know things are things are grown and people care about food. And there are a handful of places that are able to figure out what the sweet spot is that they can that they can create food that is justly made and has you know high quality ingredients and is a little bit better for you and mm-hmm. still charge a reasonable price for it. And it's still it's a, it's a really difficult thing to figure yeah. out. Yeah, sacred geometry. Yeah, I mean, I work 80 hours a week. I think a lot of what we do here and, you know, we've had to raise our prices mm-hmm. since the pandemic and since we moved. Um, but I've always had a really strong focus on trying to keep at least some of our menu in a you know, in a more reasonably priced range. And it's, if it weren't for the ways that we cut costs by like keeping the staff as tight as we do, or, you know, I'm this, this isn't a, um, what do they call it? A scalable business model. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't open up five more of these because it relies really heavily on my labor. Um, but I, that's fine. I don't yeah. want to open up five more Nick's pizzas. Well, I, I think that that's a, you know, I think that it's one of the things in our culture we've kind of strayed away from is the, the idea of the sustainable small business mm-hmm. where it's not about maximizing anything. Yeah. Where it's like, no, I want to, like, I, I remember, you know, in, in, my, in my early to mid-20s, uh, you know, it was like during the second tech boom and I was curious, like, is this, see, I'm hearing all these stories about people achieving financial independence. Mm-hmm. Like it might cut for business. I, I had to go like figure it out. The answer was a resounding no. <laughs> uh, I worked in a couple tech companies and 
witness the exploitation that was just like built into the structure. Um, and it really gave me this perspective of like, man, like I kept meeting these like 24 year old, you know, rich kids playing with daddy's money who were like, I'm going to start a business and we're going to scale in the next yeah. five years. I'm going to break all these people, you know, climbing my way up to, yeah, I just, so I don't I can get sell. it. <laughs> it's no, not, it's it, not the way that I it was miserable. think about things. It's yeah. not, you know, I, I think when I opened up and this was stupid and naive of me, mm-hmm. but when I opened up my original shop, I was on some romantic kick about like, we're going to take this back to like, you know, a pre-industrial time when people didn't think about work and life being separate things, mm-hmm. you know, which of course leads to you working eight hours a week. Right. <laughs> um, but it was, you know, it was about, I want to make this one thing. Mm-hmm. I don't want to make this one thing and then duplicate it over and over again. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'd probably have more money and be less stressed if I had started out saying I want to make this one thing and duplicate it over and over again. I know that there's a version of what we do here that could be duplicated over and over and over again, but it's not the business that I want my name on. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think I decided to create, like, the world that I want to live in instead of creating the business that I want to own just by understanding that like, if I do this, I'm going to, I'm going to be here all the time. Mm -hmm. You Um, better make it something you like. Yeah. You know, I better, I better, if I'm going to, if I'm going to take down the kitchen doors and be face to face with my customers, Mm -hmm. I better be really damn proud of what we're doing. And like, if we were the ultra sleek, scalable version of this that like you know only made cheese and pepperoni pizza and cooked everything in a conveyor oven that takes like way less skill than what we do and you know had a centralized factory that everything was coming out of like I wouldn't want to work the counter what no pizza tracker bro (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean I, I think that that you know, and this this is getting a little into, like, politics, but I would love to see an economic system that was geared towards privileging the small business owner. You know, yeah. as I start to think about my own small business dreams, and I consider myself a creative, I think a lot of creatives are just looking, how do I just make this sustainable? Uh-huh. It's not about, like, striking it rich or... You know, I just want to be able to keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah. I figured out what it is I love, and I want to do it in a way where I can just exist and not exploit other people in the way that I'm doing it. And um, I think that, like, corporations don't really need any extra help. Like, they've figured out their model that works. Yeah. So if we could, like, restructure, you know, things like the tax code and the way that people invest um so you know i do think that there's we have such a a wealth of creativity in this in this country Uh we do have a country of dreamers it's like one of our greatest exports in a lot of ways is is people being really engaged in pushing ideas you know forward and and, uh, and innovating but we have this addiction to 
everything needing to be like at the Jeff Bezos level. You yeah. Know? Where oh yeah, I don't. I mean, it's funny because you know, I'm a businessman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I'm not gonna say. No. I'm a, I'm a businessman, but I don't. You know, I identify much more with people that, and my my grandfather was a businessman too. Um, I identify much more with people that. Um, strike out to do their thing that's just going to take care of themselves and their family um, whether it's somebody that's kind of worked their way up through a system like you know working in kitchens or somebody who um, is coming here from another country and is just trying to carve out an opportunity for themselves like th- that is that little you know something that is small and sustains itself and takes care of the people that work in it is a much bigger goal for me than being listed on a stock exchange mm-hmm. or you know having investors um, that's kind of I mean that was when I opened up my business initially I thought like let's let's approach this as if I don't have all the resources in the world. I mean, I do. I have certainly a certain level of privilege, but you know, I don't come from a family that has a ton of cash. Um, and I think that's, you know, I think those are the businesses, the ones that are just created to be exactly what they are, mm-hmm. are the ones that really c- contribute to a sense of place in a city or a neighborhood. Um, that ultimately are more um, more designed to take care of the area that they're in. You know, those are the ones that not always worried about what's going to get reported back to the corporate office right. or whatever. You know, yeah. you're just concerned with what's going on around you. Um, I would imagine there's an element of like, the genuine nature of these businesses that you just described, including your own, like there's an element of almost future proofing that, that's happening because as we do like march ever towards more automation in the workplace, mm-hmm. like the Domino's model is going to become made by robots. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's going to be a drone robot pizza. Building. Yeah, but they've been saying that for like 10 years right. now. But there's going to be a really happened. Right. <laughs> I think there's going to be a market though for what it is that you're providing beca- yeah. just because this isn't something that is the, the people whether you're like a you know a knife maker mm-hmm. who makes artisan knives you know or uh, an independent art a musician who, who is producing something that is not pop that is mm-hmm. like an ind- independent you know we're, I think as humans we're also hungry for this the genuine human touch especially as we watch this world get more and more digitized mm-hmm. and metaversed and yeah you know, absolutely rem- removed from you know the humanity aspect yeah it seems to me that offering an experience that does feel more genuine that is more connected is more human in some way you know there that does have to kind of 
I, th I mean, I think about it a lot with what I'm trying to do in my life. I'm a creative professional. And I'm looking as I hear these stories of like, oh, they're going to automate all this. They're going to uh -huh. do this. I'm like, well, I don't I think it's going to be a while before they invent the AI that can do what I do right now. <laughs> you know? So I, I think the more that we can encourage people to follow. Well, this, that's why you ultimately have to love it. Because right. You're, <laughs> you totally. know, you're never, um, you know, I can spend... 30 years of my life doing the work that I do and still not be guaranteed a living off of it, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I don't... You know, there's... Whatever, I think our perspective in, in the San Francisco Bay Area is pretty skewed as far <laughs> as the whole, like, automation in the food industry thing mm -hmm. goes because we're the ones that are seeing all these different attempts at... right flippy and the automated pizza truck or whatever you know the, the delivery robots wherever it is that they're trying to take humans out of the food process mm -hmm. um, I think there was a minute maybe in some heightened marijuana induced paranoia <laughs> that I was really nervous about it um, but I I do think that you're right that that at the end of the day, people are going to feel a lot better engaging in a transaction that involves and encourages humanity. <laughs> yeah. Um, Especially for something you're putting in your body. Yeah. Certainly. But I don't, I mean, you know, I'm also okay with the fact that we put the dough in a mixer. You know, right, I think there's yeah. a place that, yeah. that, uh, machines can be really helpful and they can take some of the burden off mm -hmm. us. It's a balance. I'm not going to listen to AI podcasts. Though. Right. Right. Yeah. It's not you know. going to happen. Maybe a news ticker. I don't know. Sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, and that's, I would actually argue that what we've, you know, podcast being considered part of new media, it's kind of a rejection of the, the legacy these legacy institutions that are in a way feel kind of AIE, uh -huh. these narrative driven structures that are kind of dividing people that are emphasizing fear that are, um, I think of them as I use, I've been using this term a lot lately, like processed media, like processed foods. Uh -huh. It kind of has some of the same physiological effects. If you intake too much of it, my intention for, for the content that I make, for the things that I put out, podcast being one of them. I want this to be the like artisan dough of <laughs> podcast. You know, I want people to listen to this stuff and come away feeling like more connected, more inspired, you know, ideally not, you know, people can binge this if they want, but ideally finding their own healthy balance with, you know, the content that they're intaking in their bodies. Cause this is like, you know, it's a, kind of a trope but it's like food for thought what kind uh -huh. of food are you putting into your into your mind uh -huh. you know and, and are you filling it with processed processed cheese whiz <laughs> stories yeah. you know um are you or are you putting something in there that is actually you know feeding your your imagination mm -hmm. and going to make you healthier in the long run that's something that as i continue to build this out 
remains, you know, one of the core values. Well, it's this cool thing if, I mean, if you think of it right, I, I'm sure you've thought of this plenty, but I have not because I'm not a podcaster. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was in high school, we, you know, I met, I met my best friend who was my best friend for a long time um, in radio class on the first day of high school. And I ended up being part of KPFB back back in the day, right? Their little yeah, their little uh, small piece of bandwidth that they had that engaged young people in the neighborhood Mm -hmm. or in you know in the East Bay, um, their youth radio project. And there were lots of cool like pirate radio projects back then too, though. It was there were only so many that we could have because it's the Bay Area and it's very populated and there's not that much space on the dial for mm-hmm. somebody to hop on. So podcasts have changed that, right? Mm-hmm. We're no longer. I don't. I don't know anything about FCC regulation and podcasts mm-hmm. or whatever, but it's basically just whatever the podcast bro- broadcast company. What's it mm-hmm. called? The whoever Apple or the mm-hmm. app company that you know you get onto they're able to choose whether or not you're out there or not mm-hmm. but it's not limited by there's only so much space yeah no there's no real world right? limits to it um which is the i mean that's pretty incredible yeah it's really democratized content mm-hmm. which means of course that there's a lot of mediocre stuff out there and i think that that's I was just talking to someone the other day about that, like, um, just how giving a community the opportunity to do mediocre work as a way of finding to be great, it takes, Mm -hmm. like, many years of struggling and striving, and, like, when you have a very low entry window... Mm -hmm. And that's what we've seen certainly on, on YouTube as well. It's given a lot of people the chance to at least start to like hone their practice. And I've always been someone that's like a learn by doing. Yeah. Uh, anytime I'm into some sort of creative practice, like if I'm listening to music or, you know, turned on by some sort of express expression, like, could I do that? I gotta try that. You gotta, you, know? you gotta do it to figure out if you right. want to do it or not. Yeah, right? and, and most of my twenties were a process of like trying out that stuff and failing, and and you know feeling worse than I probably should have about that. But like, it took me a decade of doing that to get before I like figured out like, oh, I like making videos. Oh, I like making, uh, I like talking into a microphone. Mm-hmm. Actually, I've been doing this for most of my life with you know I, I grew up hitchhiking to school every day and when I was in college I, I did the Craigslist rideshare thing up and down the state nice and I was essentially doing podcasts yeah. like for hours with people just one on one one on one that I'd never met and had some really cool conversations so those skills were being tailored and then you know you get into that moment where suddenly you realize like oh, I have all these complementary strengths that are kind of converging on this thing. So I'm not like, even though I've, this podcast is like a year and a half old, coming into it, I'm like, but I, a lot of what I'm doing is 
been years in the making. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, you know, when I when I'm working on set, you know, directing videos, like, oh, my communication degree is actually worth something. You know, like I'm actually drawing on skills and tools. I haven't used been using them that long in the like the video and film environment, but the the skills that I am able to apply are, are life skills that I've gained by failing a bunch, by experimenting a bunch, by just loving to connect with humans. That's like the main thing, you know. I'm sure for you, you know, working in this competitive environment and then moving to this cooperative, democratized environment, I'm sure that that, when it was time to create your business, you know, you had all this training, you mm -hmm. know, both knowing and unknowingly that it's totally serving you to this day. Oh, absolutely. Know? Absolutely. And those, I, you know, I think in those two environments and those two approaches to me are both, I think, giant. They're both things that I, that I very strongly connect with and that I, you know, I really appreciate refinement and precision and doing things exactly the way that they're supposed to be done and mm -hmm. having very predictable results. And I really appreciate making space for different types of personalities and um, not yelling at people when things go wrong, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and having, having a structure that that allows people to learn from their mistakes instead of just learn from somebody getting, you know, chef getting pissed at them. Yeah. Um, Did you have a, a vision when you started this business about like what sort of culture you wanted to have with your employees? And like, what, what has that been like for you? You know, even just having employees. I mean the first, so I think the first time I ever talked with my mom about starting a business um, was her idea um, and like I said her father was a, he was an entrepreneur he moved here from I mean he moved from Lebanon to Mexico and then to Texas and then California um, and he opened up he had a it is car dealership he had a restaurant a hotel he finally his his business that was the most successful was texas battery company which was a refurbished car battery business and it was listed mm -hmm. on a stock exchange oh, wow. and this was you know this was everything that he had worked his whole life to do and i think my my mom saw a similar spirit in me um and you know, I think at one point I was saying something about maybe having a hard time feeling at ease in professional kitchens as a queer man. I'm trans. I don't mm -hmm. know if any... I never know who knows that, but I'm a trans man. Mm -hmm. um, and was talking to my mom about that and... She said something along the lines of, like, you know, one of these days you can open up your own place and then you can hire all of your friends and people in your community who are having that same experience. 
and that was like you know you said earlier Hobart like we're of that generation and you know maybe you know socioeconomic class where our parents said you can do anything you want like anything you can you can dream of if Mm -hmm. you put your mind to it you can accomplish it um and my mom really really waved that flag a lot um but so having her tell me that you can open up your own business and you can create a workplace that feels better for people like you like that that was like the strongest seed that was planted Mm. um you know i don't I have my fair share of ego. Like, I like that this is my restaurant and I set the rules. Um, I had, while we were talking, I remembered probably what our first interactions were, Hobart. I think they were me yelling at you about trying to come in too early to buy bread, (laughs) right? Am I right? It may have been a grumpy morning where I came in too early. And you wanted to come in before 11 o'clock. No, no, no. Maybe Michael was always selling you bread early, uh, and I shouted at him about that. I I think you did. uh, You gave me a little stink, but then you still sold me the bread, which I was very grateful for. Which probably enforced (laughs) the idea that you could come knock on the door before we opened. Um, although maybe I said, right? maybe I said just this once. Yeah, you did. I think I got a couple just this once. <laughs> um, so, uh, to that point, I don't know. Um, you know, it, I think that the early idea was to create something that was like my own, but could also support other people and that like I could have be the way that I want it to be because I am a Virgo and I am particular and, mm-hmm. um, you know, but could also like, I knew, I knew after working in New York and I'm not going to, you know, I, I don't think I was ever really, really exploited as a restaurant worker because I was enough of an adult to know that what was going on in the restaurants that I was working at wasn't to labor code. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I'm, you know, no, nothing. I don't know. Maybe this is victim mentality, but like mm-hmm. nothing too, too bad. But like, you know, I put in plenty of hours of working and not getting paid or not getting paid overtime or, you know, not being given breaks, but you know, I was Mm -hmm. never chained to a table. Right. Um, a lot of that industry is, you know, is built on that as well. Oh, it's a hundred percent built on that. I mean, it's, you know, and it's one of the, it's one of the big reckonings that's happened over the last two years with COVID is that, you know, COVID forced a lot of people out of our industry. They went and got jobs at other places that may not be better work environments, but do at least follow labor laws. Mm-hmm. Um, and then suddenly, like, it's really hard to staff restaurants again. Um, you know, there's this kind of like, uh, it's almost like everybody in the industry has been like hypnotized or kind of bought into some cult phenomena that like this is acceptable because you should be so grateful mm-hmm. for this job working for whatever big name chef or at whatever trendy highly regarded new restaurant um you know and we were like we work our asses off at my shop 
and we try to always make sure that everybody gets a break when they're supposed to. Sometimes it doesn't happen, mm -hmm. but, you know, nobody works without getting paid. There's no... When I was in New York, like, everybody just made per diem, which is illegal. Um, what, what, per diem, per diem means, like, you you make 100 bucks a day, gotcha. period. And that's how much you make. Unofficial salary? Yeah. Um, you know, and even I worked at places where I punched a clock, but it was, like, to make sure that, that I was coming here. in on time and wasn't leaving early, but my pay wasn't actually attached to the amount of hours that I was putting in. Um, you know, it's, it's just, you know, oh, that's how it is in the, in the industry, mm -hmm. you know, and you're a bright eyed new cook and you're not going to say anything because you don't want to shake the boat because they're just going to toss you overboard. Right. Um, so, you know, I felt like there's got to be a better way, but there's really kind of, I mean, I'm not going to say there's not, but, like, the better way in, it involves, like, looking at how we can make restaurants more profitable. Mm -hmm. um, and that generally means charging more for products. Um, because all those practices continue to go on in a lot of restaurants because that's the only way that the restaurant can be profitable. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know. Right. We all want to pay three bucks for a hamburger. Right, right. And it again, it's like, makes me start to feel idealistic where I'm like, we subsidize so many industries in this country uh, to such a great extent that yeah. our doing so much less for us um, and not saying that I like am a government think that I'm not like a government fix all I'm probably mm -hmm. more libertarian minded than I am mm -hmm. you know I'm definitely not a big government guy um, but you also think about like how many of these quote unquote exploitative situations are the result of these very real world pressures on small business owners who are like hey if this is the the way that it is, and if I don't do this, I don't have a business. Mm -hmm. There, I don't really see them so much as the villains in this in this situation. It's it's kind of just this circumstance that's grown out, and I think that after you know after this last year, you've seen so many. I mean, how many restaurants that were institutions of New York closed over you know the pandemic? Yeah, huge number, right? Yeah, and, and you've seen that all across the country. You know, we kind of have to ask ourselves as a culture, like, what is that value that we lost? You know, what yeah. And this just scratches the surface, of course, because this is just the very, this is like the last 30 seconds of the food chain, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> right. This doesn't even begin to talk about what happens in the fields right. or what happens yeah. in factories. I mean... I bless all those poor people at Foster Farms <laughs> over COVID who, you know, had their managers taking bets on who was going to get sick because of the conditions that they were being forced to work in. And, you know, 
everybody knew what was going on and that they were skirting OSHA standards, but they just did it anyways mm-hmm. um, because the defense of the, the defense act was like act enacted yeah. to get meat on the market mm. instead of to get personal protective equipment on the market. Um, you know, there's a lot of it, I I think I think as much as restaurant workers work hard and have it hard and are you know often exploited mm-hmm. and there's a lot, there's exploitation in our industry you know for one at least we're in a state that doesn't have a sub tip a sub minimum you know tipped wage which is something that happens in a lot of other parts of the country where your employer can pay you like $2 an hour if you make tips um but I think that if we really want to look at this whole problem, us restaurant owners need to be paying more as well. Like customers need to be paying more, but I need to be paying more for my raw ingredients. You know, mm-hmm. I need there. This needs to go all the way down, you know, to the to the very beginning of the process. Yeah. To farmers, to farm workers. Mm-hmm. Anyways. It's more than we're going to solve today, Hobart. Of course. Probably. <laughs> of course. Well, I think, uh, you know, one of the last, you know, I don't know how much time you have today, and I've, you've been super generous with your time so far. Um, Should probably wrap up soon. Cool. Well, let's just end it. I think there was one more, like, kind of story or question I had mm-hmm. for you, which was just, and it, and it is it's relevant, right, to what we were just talking about. You know, I've watched you guys move from this tiny little hole in the wall spot to this beautiful, you know, we're sitting in it right now. A L- little more fully realized. Yeah, expansive space with plenty of seating. And um, I've been delighted to see how, how busy it's been in here. There's, mm-hmm. there's been a pretty pretty nice stream of people. Um what was the experience like of, of making that decision, you know, and then, and then moving during the pandemic yeah. and being able to, you know, survive when, when so many businesses were closing and, you know, I'm just curious. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it was, the timing was really interesting. Um, we were supposed to, we moved, I mean, we moved for a lot of reasons. Um, but I didn't, you know, a year before the pandemic hit, I was actually in contract to purchase the building that our business used to be in. Um, the owner of that property kind of forced us out, um, and that coincided with the pandemic. And we were riding out like a month to month lease over there um, while trying to figure out how to operate safely. Um, in a, you know, 700 square foot building with really minimal ventilation. Um, so we were like doing this really pared down version of what we've always done, uh, because I was incredibly cautious and didn't want the whole staff to be in the space at once and just create a cesspool. Mm -hmm. Um, I did what I could to support my crew that didn't feel comfortable working, um, you know, including trying to raise funds for them and bringing them groceries, helping people with rent, um, helping people get enrolled on unemployment. 
um, and trying to kind of understand what was going on with those systems as best as possible. Anyways, it was me and like two or three other people working when we had nine or ten people on staff before the pandemic. Um, so that was done to like try to accommodate social distancing. And then uh, we realized we're going to like basically lose our space. Um, so I was able to come down here to our current location where there was a, a Korean barbecue business that had been trying to find somebody to take over their lease for a while. Um, and everything kind of lined up in that sense. They were happy to take an offer f from me to buy out their lease. Um, I got, you know, was really fortunate to end up in a situation with a small family landlord, which is always, always mm -hmm. uh, my favorite situation to be in, both re residentially and commercially. Um, you know, the woman that owns this property, her father operated a, a neighborhood corner store here for years, um, and she's lived in the neighborhood her whole life. That's, That's awesome. As absolutely as good as it gets. The property's black-owned. Black I'm happy to be putting my rent dollars mm -hmm. into the pockets of somebody who have owned a part of this neighborhood for a long time. Um, so we were like immediately were able to, when we reopened here, which was, you know, after a couple of months of some small um, remodel and moving equipment, um, we're able to bring on more staff um, and bring back our staff that, you know, was excited to come back. Um, we had, we lost some staff members, um, to, you know, move to other jobs and then wanted to stay on there. Mm -hmm. Um, but we were able to like re-expand in a way that felt really good. Um, and continue to like be super, super, super safe. This was like, you know, all I thought about for the first year of the business. I wanted to be thinking about sandwiches that we were making and you know the finer points of our new ovens mm -hmm. and you know focus on a, a lot of training of new staff which I wasn't able to do as much as I would have liked to because I was trying to figure out where the fuck to buy masks and hand sanitizer and how to like set the space up in a way that was like still efficient to operate but also safe to operate. You All know. the things you went to chef school for. Yeah, exactly. I My <laughs> saying over the last couple of years is like, I'm, I do what I do for a living because I like problem solving, but I'm like really fucking sick of problem solving <laughs> at, this time, at this point. These are not the problems that I want to try to solve, you know? Right. Um, I want to solve like problems about how to engineer a sandwich or, mm -hmm. you know, how we should cook this pizza or what to do with the dough because it's really hot out right now. Um, but we figured it out. You know, we, I think from like a health and wellness perspective, we were really cautious and I want to say we were really lucky, but like, I think it was, you know, the result of our caution. Um, and still to this day, like, knock mm -hmm. on wood, you know, hopefully it continues that way. Um, 
we've, you know, we're lucky to be, like, in the Bay Area where people are pretty on board with, like, let's wear masks and, okay, we can't eat inside. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we're trying to figure out, we're trying to do what we can to keep the greater good in mind. Mm -hmm. You know, we haven't dealt with too many attitudes around that stuff. Um, I think it's, you know, to our benefit that we don't serve liquor. We haven't had to deal with drunk people and trying to get them to wear masks. Um, But it's, you know, it's worked out nicely. I think... I mean, shit. We could we could talk for another two hours about this. Honestly, sure. you know, I've I I think that I'll be able to look back on this time and say that I did everything right, everything as well as I could. Mm-hmm. I tried to like stay connected to each and every one of my employees and see what their needs were financially and as far as their comfort around safety and you know the idea was just to survive you know I didn't do a Jeff Bezos pivot and (laughs) you know turn this into like a great economic boom for me I just wanted you know we lost we lost money in 2020 like that's okay but we you know we were not the business isn't living hand to mouth and it never has been. Mm -hmm. So we were able to weather it. Um, But, you know, I, I think we came out. Okay. I don't want to say we came out for the better. We all, we've all been getting sick a lot less since we wear masks all the time. And that's been nice. Yeah. Um, You know, us restaurant folks are hand washing pros as it is, but right. it's definitely been, um, it's been like a good environment to bring new people in to because these things like right. food safety are so, it's like so heightened right now, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, eh, it's been all right. It's, it's been <laughs> really trying, you know, it's yeah. been, it's been really difficult. Um, I'm glad that we're at a place where, like, you know, we kind of stayed through all of the through all of the tiers and the different regulations for restaurants. We always just kept ourselves a step more cautious mm. than what was being allowed. Um, so there was like some weird points in there where, like, we weren't we were still serving our customers from the exterior of the of the business. Um, and not allowing people to like eat on our, you know, on our property. And we would have to tell people like, sorry, like I know that outside dining is open everywhere else, but we're not doing it. And like, the truth of it is like my logic behind that was that like, we, we serve all kinds of people here, Mm -hmm. including people that, are older and could be at risk. We never know who has, who's immunocompromised. I just wanted to make sure that, you know, as one of the few businesses serving food in this neighborhood, we were able to create something that felt safe for absolutely anybody that stopped by because I felt like what we were doing wasn't about being a business anymore. Mm -hmm. It was about providing a service to the community 
having jobs for people that needed to work either because unemployment wasn't enough or because they needed it for their own emotional well-being because we did we lost an employee during lockdown mm. um, who I think was probably really struggling with the effect of being out of work on yeah. his on his psyche um, you know we just kind of needed to keep plugging along I like I couldn't I couldn't not work it was not feeling good to me right um, yeah but you know we wanted to do everything we could to just make the business feel safe and I think that was that was the right approach um, you know I'm happy that our older customers still felt comfortable coming by and picking up their fresh loaf of bread or their pizza from us um, but when we finally got to the point where we're like okay we'll put the picnic tables out mm -hmm. you know we don't have to yell at people sitting outside <laughs> trying to eat sitting on the ground it started to feel a little bit better and you know we're still not doing we still keep everybody in a mask when mm -hmm. they're inside and people understand that and I think that it you know it's been interesting to see we don't have like a lot of um, you know, some places have like a capacity for the number of customers that we that they want inside at once. We don't have anything like that posted. We haven't since we opened the doors. Um, but it's really interesting to see customers kind of do what feels right for them, um, create their own little. Okay, I'm not gonna go step inside the shop yet until maybe until a couple of people leave you know um mm -hmm. i think it's strange sometimes because sometimes when when there's a line of people outside i want to say like, come in come in come in right, like right. we can serve you faster yeah, totally. but i also don't you know we've all just had to learn to kind of be patient and understand that everybody everybody in the service industry and everybody in the world is we just give them the benefit of the doubt mm -hmm. You're doing the best you can. It's been a really rough couple of years. So I'll just, like, be kind to each other, yeah. you know? <laughs> I mean, that's a great uh, great ethos to keep in mind for everything, but especially, yeah, and just remember that everybody's making, trying to make their own sense of the situation. Yeah, their drawing their way. boundaries where they need to, mm -hmm. and, like, that's okay. And exercising <laughs> mass consent. Yeah. There you go. Sweet. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, it's like, been great I speaking with you, Hobart. Really appreciate your time, and um, it's been so cool to hear the story. And uh, last question, I promise. Sure. Pineapple on pizza. You know, you do you. <laughs> uh, I, you know, we don't, we don't do it. Um, <laughs> we don't diplomatic. We don't, <laughs> we don't do it because nobody around here has got time to cut up a fresh pineapple, right. and, I, and we try to open as few cans as possible. Uh -huh. Um, but I, like I'll order a pepperoni and pineapple pizza uh, sometimes. I'm not really into like what they call Canadian bacon yeah, all that no. much. Um, but I yeah. like I get it. I'm <laughs> not ham, right. What's the difference? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get angry at yeah. somebody for it. You know we uh, get we used to have a lot of cute exchanges. People ask us for that kind of stuff a lot less these days. Um, but when we were very new business. You know, oh, you don't have Hawaiian pizza? And we'd get to be like, no, but we do have prosciutto and peach. Right. And sometimes people are like, the fuck are you talking about? And sometimes they would give it a try and get their mind blown because, mm -hmm. like... That's really good. <laughs> yeah. 
we're thinking the same thing. You know, you and your Hawaiian pizza and me and my prosciutto and peach pizza, like, we're just playing, we're like in different parts of the harmony. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you you guys actually bailed me out the other night. I had a, I had a first date uh, and I was like, let's just do pizza. You know, and she's like, okay. Like, I was like, what do you like on your pizza? And she's like, pineapple. I was like, oh, you know what? I'm sorry. Like, the spot the I'm going to. that we're going to does yeah, not exactly. do that. So thank you. That, uh, <laughs> I, no, I mean, I think for myself, uh, at least in my own palate, I find it hard to blend sweet and savory unless there's a little heat. Huh. Like, that's like the marriage that usually works for me when I'm, I love to cook. Uh, but if I'm trying to like use a non-traditional sweet ingredient yeah. with you want something spicy to go I need to it. have a little see we used to, to do long before anybody was into Mike's hot honey on pizza we used to do a habanero honey Ooh. on a peach pizza okay that was like yeah a real tasty one maybe we'll bring that back to you one of these days however awesome. well I'll <laughs> always be a like I said I love the sausage mushrooms I've I'm usually grabbing like a combo when I come here, but I'll, gotcha. if I see that, I'll get it. I'll feel that connection to it for sure. Right on. Well, thank you so Sweet. much. Thank you. Best of luck uh, with, with the, with the future. I hope things continue to uh, just get better for you guys here. Thank you. Oh yeah. Cheers. All right. There you go. There you have it. Uh, thanks so much to Nick for coming on the show. Um, taking time out of your busy schedule. I really appreciate you and everything you're doing in our community. Super cool to hear the story and uh, just how much, you know, it was awesome just to see how much Nick cares about his employees and the place uh, and, and the business. And, you know, this is this is his creative practice and to see that applied um, across the board in all these different business practices is super inspiring. Um so, uh, yeah, hope you guys found it enjoyable and interesting and maybe appetizing. Um, and, uh, if, if I, if I don't get one of these out before Christmas, I'm going to try to get one out next week. But, uh, if I don't, then y'all have a real nice Festivus, good holidays, whether you're, you know, celebrating whether you have celebrated with your menorahs or your trees or your, you know, Kwanzaa stuff. Uh, I don't know if they have, I need to do more research. Um, I hope you have a really lovely, you know, holiday and, uh, just, just whoever you're with, uh, you know, celebrate them and, uh, you know, have some good food and, uh, you know, if you can, maybe try a little stay home and chillin', because uh, I gotta say, it's just tremendous. Be well, my friends. <laughs>